Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and thank you for joining us. Uh, just in case you haven't, this is your first time for coming across Deep in Scripture. You can go to deepinscripture.com where you can find all the old episodes of the program. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question about anything that we've said. Um, I know that what my guest will say, I'm sure, is going to cause all kinds of problems in your life. So if you need counseling, you can, you can, uh, I'm joking. Uh, and I'm doing this because I like ripping my guest, uh, good friend Tim Staples from Catholic Answers. But if you do have any questions, uh, you can send us a question at deep in scripture, dis at net, chnetwork.org. So, uh, and you can go to our website, chnetwork.org, to find out about all the things that Coming Home Network does. As I mentioned, my guest today on Deep in Scriptures is Tim Staples. He's with Catholic Answers, and I think your title, Tim, if I get it right, you're the head poobah of apologetics. <laughs> That's right. Director of apologetics and evangelization, but poobah is fine. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> Tim, uh, what a great privilege to have you join us. Uh, the, the only thing bad is that I don't see you enough. You're on the other side of the, of the United States from me. Uh, but it's a great gift of God to be able to join you uh, by Skype and talk to you and talk about what you're doing. And uh, as you just mentioned before the program, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this to the whole world, but it looks like you <laughs> might be having another child joining, yeah. joining the world, right? Yes, we have made the announcement. Uh, we're right at about the end of the first trimester. so. Uh, we have, uh, as as I said to you off air, Marcus, two in heaven and seven on earth now, and we had three boys and three girls on earth. So we wanted to, uh, well, at least we don't know what the other two are in, in heaven, but we have three boys and three girls on earth. So we had to break the tie. So here comes uh, number seven on earth, and we are stoked. Of course, now it, Marcus, it messes up everything because we got to go from minivan to Megavan, so. <laughs> yeah, well, how many of them do you have in car seats? Well, right now we have three, but one of them, by the time this one's born, will be out, so we'll shuffle them, you know? Yeah. So it'll still be three, car seats or boosters. <laughs> yeah, that's where it gets to be a challenge, you know? Yeah, I, I understand. We, we were staying at a local hotel once recently on vacation, and so my wife and I were there. There were two of us in a hotel room that legally could have four people. Well, then my son, right. John Mark, and his family wanted to come for a day. Well, now they have five of them, so we got two of us, so we had <laughs> seven. So we wanted to up it to the next room. Well, after we got in, the, the, the people came to us and said, wait, legally we can only have six in this room. So yeah. the baby had to stay out in the car all night long. But uh, <laughs> we had to kind of fake it. Uh, but yes. <laughs> you start having family, like you're going to have how many? You're going to have nine of you whenever you go somewhere. That's right. That's right. And see, the, the SUV perfectly fits eight. So this just messes everything up. But you know what? We love getting messed up like this. <laughs> oh, and Marcus, you know, the kids are just so excited. You know, they, they're they already talking to the baby in mommy's belly, and they can't wait, you know. That's great. Well, you could get a motorcycle sidecar to stick on the side of that eight van. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thanks for joining us on, on Hard Verses. Um, it's great to be with you, buddy. Those of you, in fact, anyone listening that wants to know more about Tim Staples, what's the website? It is catholic.com. I know that's hard to remember, but <laughs> catholic.com, and you can also check me out at timstaples.com. All right, excellent. Tim uh, brings 
to us uh, a background of being a Baptist and Assembly of God. So you've, you're coming from the background. So we pick, when I invite the guests to pick a hard verse, usually it's something that connects with their background. Either it was a, a scripture that was hard for them to deal with as uh, what they their previous tradition, or it was a, uh, a key verse, yeah. one that they understood extremely easily and figured if anyone else didn't understand it easily, then they were, of course, wrong. Right, Tim? That's right. And going to hell, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you were of that ilk. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. But, you, you know, uh, audience, there's the point. God, in his love for us, gave us the scriptures that so that we might know him and love him and serve him. We have this word that uh, is a part of the of this great tradition we've received in our faith. And some of us assume that all you got to know to know Jesus is the Bible. That's all I got to know. And it's clear. And so for some people, it seems really clear. But for the guy next door, it may not be so clear. In fact, it may be so unclear that they think we're going to hell because of the way we look at it, and we think they're going to hell because of the way they look at it, and that's what divides Christianity all around the world, doesn't it, Tim? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And, you know, when when we look at a, a verse like the one I chose is Romans 3.28, yeah. uh, we hold that a, a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Now, as you know, Marcus, I, and I, I being raised a Baptist, this scripture verse was so clear how I was taught from the time I was eight years old. I mean, you got to be brain dead not to get this one right. How, how can, and, and we're really coming from a Lutheran perspective as he famously uh, commented on this very text in his, in his uh, magnum opus, The Bondage of the Will, Luther says, when Paul here condemns works, he condemns all works whatsoever as related to our justification. And he says, and any preparation whatsoever, of course, the Council of Trent would later respond to that. But the idea of us even even having to prepare ourselves for grace, which you and I know is in response to prevenient grace or actual graces that are already there moving us to Christ. But Luther says, no, Paul here is condemning all works whatsoever. And, and of course, Marcus, his thesis in his greatest work there in his dialogue with Erasmus, the Catholic theologian, his, his entire thesis is that free will is a myth. It is bogus because we are as he also says in Barnes of the Will in two different places, he says, we're like a horse or a donkey. If God gets on our back and rides us, he'll ride us to heaven. If the devil gets on our back and rides us, he'll rise to hell. But the, the horse or the donkey has no choice as to who rides him. And so, Marcus, this is crucial for folks to understand that I, was I wasn't raised with that full understanding of, of Luther's teaching, but I think it kind of trickled down to us to where for us, if you say that we have to, you know, cooperate with our own justification, certainly uh, in an ongoing sense, 
but even even for many Protestants, even in the initial sense, any cooperation whatsoever actually takes away from the atonement of Christ and is and is blasphemous. I mean, yeah. Luther took this thing and ran with it. This is why he despised the mass. This is why I mean, he would later jettison the com basically the communion of saints because hey, look, if I can't do anything for my salvation or my justification, because Paul here according to Luther, clearly rejects all works whatsoever. Well, then what can Mary do for me? Or what can the saints do for me? And this leads to that me and Jesus theology that you and I were raised on. This is all I need is you. I don't need nobody. I don't need, certainly don't need some dude with a white beanie on his head telling me what to, <laughs> to believe. But it's, it's a, it, the consequences of this theology are absolutely devastating. But Marcus, you and I were raised this way, and, and for me, again, it's like, well, like Luther said, how could Paul be any more plain? Yeah. We're justified by faith apart from works of law. So works was an absolute bad word. Well, we do works to show that we are justified, but they are not necessary for our salvation. They're not constitutive of our uh, justification before God in any way whatsoever. Now, Marcus, that was easy for me. Yeah. And, and, until yeah, okay. <laughs> a Catholic presents let's, the other side. Let's just, let's, okay, now let's set the until aside for just a second because I want to join you in that conversation. I was brought up Lutheran and I had to memorize the small catechism. Yes. Uh, and and it, it was taught to us without any discussion or appreciation that there might be other people around town that think differently. This is what's true. And listen to this verse again that you read. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Tim, when you look at all the baggage that Luther brought to that statement, depravity of the will, all those other things, um, that there's not a thing you can do ourselves to please God. You know, the problem that I had, even as a young man when I was hearing that, and this was one of the reasons why I eventually left my Lutheranism behind to become a scientific materialist and gave up everything, was because it's one thing to sit and in the catechism class, you, you know, looking at it, here and I were talking, we're looking at the scriptures, we're saying it boldly, we're talking about total depravity of the will. Nobody, you know, if God's riding us or the devil's riding us, there's nothing thing we can do about it. I remember once when I was a Presbyterian pastor, I had a woman in my congregation who in tears admitted to me that she knew she wasn't of the chosen. Oh, and that there wasn't anything she could do about it. She'd known it her whole life, that oh, long before she was ever born from the creation of the world, for some reason, God had decided she was not of the elect. And oh, it wasn't that she didn't want to do good things, but she was convinced from the time she was a young girl that it didn't make a difference how she lived her life. She could never turn God toward her because her will was depraved. You know, all that theology and theory but what bothered me, Tim, is then, okay, I leave that in my office or in the study, and I go out in the real world, and I look at people, and I try and ask myself, well, wait a second, you mean they don't have any kind of free will? Yeah. You mean what they're doing out there, they, they can't choose to do good? 
And so trying to translate that out into reality was the biggest problem for me. Did you ever encounter that problem? It was easy for you to see what it said in the text, but what about when you got out into the real world? Yeah, absolutely. You remind me of a, a young man I met at Jimmy Swaggart Bible College who, uh, like that young woman you're speaking of, became convinced that he was not one of the elect. And this guy, oh my gosh, his name was Andy. He was such a dear man. And he ended up, and he was only, he was only like 19, 20 years old, and he lost like 50 pounds. He, his blood pressure went through the roof. He went to the doctor, and he, Andy actually told, he said the doctor, gave him a physical and said, son, what are you doing to yourself? You're, you're like a 75 year old man. What is going on? And Andy looked at me, I'll never forget it. And he, he said, I felt like saying to that doctor, if you thought you were going to split hell wide open any minute, you'd be a little nervous too. Now he got out of that actually through Jimmy Swaggart and an Arminian approach to justification, you know, in the assemblies of God. But the point is, yes, these theological constructs that so many, you know, sitting behind a desk writing books and in, in seminary classes can bang, bang verses back and forth. And boy, look, look at this theory. But you and I have seen in the lives of real people what happens when these theologies trickle down into their real lives. And this is one of the things that ultimately brought me to the Catholic faith, yes. is that the, the Catholic faith I have found to be that, I, I believe it was Frank Sheed who said theology is a symphony, as, as I recall. And in Catholicism, I saw the true symphonic nature of sacred scripture, as well as sacred theology, that everything fits. And it fits, not just in theory, but in the lives of real human beings. And I, I saw it in my life, uh, Marcus, through the sacraments, confession in particular, and the Eucharist, the transformation in my life. I saw it in my entire family. As you know, you know my brother Terry, who's now a, a Catholic priest, hard to believe for 21 years. I saw the transformation in my father, who just passed away this past October in a, in a blessed state. Um, I ask everybody to, to pray for him. Yeah. But my, my dad, I saw such a transformation. And really, if your theology is real, it's, it's true, it's gonna trickle down well. It's gonna make you a better person. It's gonna make you a more virtuous person, a more well-rounded person. And that's what you see, Marcus, in the lives of the saints for two thousand years. Yeah, it's like when I tried to, to talk with that woman um, who was so convinced that she was not of the elect, yeah. And to a certain extent, nothing I could say could break through that because of she was so indoctrinated to her particular theology. But the one thing that I remember at the time talking to her about was, do you want to be close to God? Do you have that love and desire to do whatever you could? She says, well, of course. And I tried to convince her that's a sign of grace. Yeah. That's a sign of God's grace. If you weren't of the elect, you wouldn't give a rip. Yes. That's the point, that the, yeah. the desire in our heart is a sign of that. But you, know what, you know what, Marcus, for my friend in Bible college, he, as a young man, had a problem. We'll call it a besetting sin, right? Yeah, yeah. He had a besetting sin that is common to a lot of young teenage boys. Yeah. And he could not get rid of this sin. He would beg God for forgiveness and fall right back into it. And that's why 
he determined, you know what, I must be condemned. I'm not well, one of the elect, because if I was truly one of the elect, I wouldn't be doing this. You're actually hitting the nail on the head of, a, of another question I wanted to ask you before we moved on to the next part, and that is this idea of the baggage that Luther himself, br- why was it that yes. Luther had this spin on everything? And one of the theories that people had is he had a besetting sin. Yes. That 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 put him down, that destroyed him, that made him feel separate from God, no matter what he could do. I remember the story about the first time he celebrated Mass, he was just almost in despair. Yes. Uh, you know, and so what was going on, think yeah. about this, that so shaped him yes. that separated the church, and here we're about ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of that separate, not celebrate it, but recognize yeah. it. Yeah, and, and as you know, his one of the confessors testified that he would go into confession, confess his sins, walk out, and run back in because he had one thought, and and it's alleged that uh, his confessor said, "Luther, get out of here! You're forgiven. <laughs> go," you know, and he could not accept forgiveness, and there were deep psychological problems. But here, here's the irony, though, Marcus is he creates, and as our friend Ken Hensley, I think, points out really beautifully in a CD set he did for St. Joseph Communications years ago, it's fantastic, on Luther and some of that background information. Luther had a terrible relationship with his father. Uh, And, of course, we don't have the other side of the story, but according to Luther, we'll take him at his word, his father was abusive, and he could never please his father. His father was just you know, untouchable. And so he creates a theology where you don't have to, <laughs> you, know, you don't have, he kind of projected that it seems on yeah. God. And so he could never please God. He could never do enough for God. And so he projects this, this on God. Well, he creates a theology that says you don't have to please God. It's justification by faith alone. And the odd thing, here's the irony, Marcus, <laughs> is you create this theology so that, wow, I'm justified by faith alone. But in the end, it leads to guys like my friend Andy and, and that young lady there who, because this theology, well, how do you know? that you're one of the elect. How do you know you you end up through the back door having a similar problem because there has to be, look, you can't just say, I believe in Jesus and, and, and live your life however you want to. There has to be something. There has to be, you know, for John Calvin, the sign that you're one of the elect. And that's where the problem starts. Yeah. Because then we, we get back to this, uh, this idea. Well, gosh, I have this besetting sin, or, or I have this problem, I have these serious doubts. It can come in many different forms, so I must not be one of the elect. Yeah, looking in the Puritan, New England Puritans, we're all caught up, and you got to have this sign that you were of one of the elect, and it's got to be your life, and so a very strict, uh, r- rule-centered, so it, it came back around the back door to bite them. But then you have other verses like Hebrews 6, 4, where the writer says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of yes. the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy. 
since they crucify the Son of God of their own accord and hold him up to contempt. Well, then how do you fit that hard verse into what you used to believe? That's right. It, it, it does not fit. Now, of course, that, that verse is in the context of the inspired author to the Hebrews dealing with Judaizers who were doing what? They were leaving the sacraments, leaving the new covenant that Jesus had established in order to go back to the old law. So he was describing what they were doing by trying to be justified by the law, by circumcision, by this, yep. this or that. But in the process, he gives us a really unassailable example of the possibility of leaving Christ. You can be justified, saved, whatever you want to call it, but you can't get around verses like Hebrews 6, yeah. 4 through 6, that you can leave. You can uh, lose your state of justice. Now, there were other two other things before we move on. And that is that in your understanding of that verse, for we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, you also yeah. had an understanding of what you saw being justified, what that meant. Right. What does it mean to be justified by, well, I guess three things. One, what does it mean to be justified? Number two, what is faith? Yes. And then thirdly, these works of the law, what those things are. And really, in some ways, understanding those three things makes the verse hard or soft or easy in Absolutely. different perspectives. Yeah. And the, what really rocked my world was meeting a Catholic, as I said earlier, that until <laughs> I met my, my buddy, Sergeant Madula, in, when I was in the Marine Corps, who introduced me to what I had not seen before. Okay. This is why it's such a blessing, Marcus, to, for you to do what you're doing here, what we do at Catholic Answers. is really, we're introducing folks yeah. to say, hey, there's another way to look at this, guys. Let's take a look. And he showed me verses of Scripture that indicate that justification is not a simple one-time deal. As From the time I was a kid, I was always taught, what does it mean to be justified? Well, you are made in a legal sense, justified never sinned. Remember that, yep, Marcus? Yep, yep. We would say justified in a, in a legal transaction, a, to use Luther's legal fiction, you are made righteous. It has nothing to do with anything intrinsic or innate inside you, but it's a legal, it's Luther's covering. I was raised on that. The old image that Luther gave of we're like cow dung and we're covered over with snow, yep. but inside what are you still? You're still cow dung, right? Whereas as, as our friend Father Mitch Packwood put it many years ago when I was watching his debate with Walter Martin back in 1986. Oh, yes. remember hearing it myself. Oh, yeah. And Marcus, he he said, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you the cow dung thing. We're not exactly in agreement there, but we get pretty stinky. OK, we'll give you that. But what God, the Catholic and biblical answer to that is God plows you under, takes the seed of the word of God. He plows you under with his grace, plants the seed of the word of God and brings flowers out of, of that old cow dung. So the justification Biblically speaking, the justification that the Catholic Church teaches is not simply a one-time deal. There's an, an initial 
act of justification, a grace of justification that we receive at baptism. But then we enter into, and this was revolution. This is what made it hard, Marcus, for, for me, is when he introduced this concept of justification then being a process, as Paul will say in so many different places. But it, for example, in Romans 6, 16, he says, know you not that whosoever you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are, whether it is sin, which leads unto death, thanaton in Greek, leads unto death, or obedience, obedience, which leads to justification. Whoa, wait a second here. What do you mean leading to? And he's talking to Christians. Because he just mentioned in, in Romans 6, 4, 3 and 4, baptism. They've been, they entered into Christ through baptism. Now he's talking about living a life of justice. Marcus, that was alien to me. The idea of living a life of justice, justice increasing in justification, was completely alien. And yet you have St. Paul teaching it that justification is not just a one-time act, but it is a process. That threw everything into chaos for me. And, and salvation we can talk about as well, also is seen in the New Testament. It's not just a one-time event, which is what I was raised on. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest a man should boast. There too, salvation. The question always was, are you saved? Have you been saved? Well, the Bible also indicates, as my, my buddy pointed out to me, not only is justification a process, but so is salvation, because we have verses like, you know, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Or, or one of my favorites is Roman, Romans eleven thirteen, where St. Paul says, now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. What? <laughs> what? Wait a second. I'm already saved. Paul, what are you talking about? Now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Romans 11, 13 and 14 there. So that, you know what this is, Marcus? This is what we're called to do, I believe, as Catholics. In our apostolates, we plant seeds. We are called to bring people to a paradigm shift, man. You've been raised, and, and you and I understand what it is to be raised, seeing Scripture in this way. We're in a bubble. We don't hear any other uh, sort of opinions, and then all of a sudden, wow, that's what we're called to do. Let's just sit down, share. Let's talk about this, and it's amazing what God does. I was given an example in a talk I gave this weekend about— uh, when I was pastor of my very first church alone, solo pastor, a little country church, that was a church that was a replacement for another church that had been destroyed by a flood. And the only thing that survived from the old church to the new church was the bell. And so there's the bell tower. But when I got there, it had been 10 years since they built the church, the new church, they were ringing the bell. And I asked, well, why aren't you ringing the bell? And they said, well, the first time we rang it in the new church, the local farmer called because it had so scared his chickens, it killed 100 chickens. Oh so, they, so they quit ringing the bell. Well, now here it's 10 years later, and they're not ringing the bell. And I'm asking the new members, well, why don't you ring the bell? And they're saying, we don't know. 
We don't we don't know until an old an old member said, "Well, yes. yeah, it was about that chicken thing, but there hasn't been chickens there for 8 years." So yeah. the the point is that the people are not ringing the bell and they don't know why. They don't yeah. know why. So the next yeah. Sunday we start ringing the bell. A lot of people have interpretations of scripture that they've picked up along the way. And the chickens have been long gone. And you know, (laughs) they don't know why they believe that verse anymore. And and, and Marcus, I I want to mention real quick, that was, I got it, I got it in verse there. It's Romans 13, 11, that now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. I think I said it the other way around, Romans 11, 13. But what you're saying is, is so important. And not only, Marcus, for our Protestant friends, but many, many Catholics that we deal with constantly have been raised in a church and sisters said it this way 40 years ago, and by golly, this is the truth. And no, it ain't. (laughs) You know, you got to show them the catechism and say, you know, God bless sister. I'm sure she was well-intentioned. And maybe you misheard her, but the truth of the matter is this. You know, Marcus, we need each other. There, we need. This is another example why sola scriptura just does not work. Because we can sit and read our Bible a hundred thousand times. It's like when you when you have a book manuscript, Marcus. You finish a book manuscript, you read that thing ten thousand times, but you give it to your editor and he finds. <laughs> you can't believe how many errors he finds. And I wrote that because you see it a certain way, yeah. even when you read over it and over and over it, you see it a certain way. This is why we all need what we're all the Ethiopian eunuch, right? In Acts chapter eight, we're reading Isaiah 53. And we might think we know it, but we need Philip to come. And we need to be humble enough to say, how can I know what it means unless somebody tell me? We need each other. We need to get together in prayer groups and Bible studies as Catholics, which we don't do enough, Marcus, get together. And for our Protestant friends that, that are listening right now, we do need to open our minds to other perspectives. Because look, ultimately, what are we afraid of? You know, I, that's one thing I, I will say, Marcus, I was open to what my boy Matt Dula was saying because I had no fear. I was, I knew I was yeah. right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I knew I was right. And and so I said, bring it on, brother. I'll read anything you, you're gonna give to me. And, and I really believe, Marcus, that's one of the reasons why I'm Catholic. Well, and it's a crucial time. You, we, you know, you were an officer, and we've, we've, we're seeing this violence, um, all, uh, police officers being killed, murdered. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of bitterness. Uh, if people are looking for explanations. Uh, it's hard to open up a newspaper today without hearing somewhere in the United States somebody's done a murder-suicide. Uh, there's uh, despair. And this is why it's so crucial that our Lord is calling for us to reach out. And if so many people are absolutely certain they've got their 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 finger on it, they know exactly what it is. And and like I jokingly said earlier, the chickens have been gone a long time. Are you do you know that what you're believing is true and it will hold the weight of your life when you meet the Lord someday? That's the key. Who are you trusting? And that's Amen. why our Lord Jesus gave us a church. Amen. And, um, you know, being justified, being sanctified, being yeah. holy, giving yeah. ourselves. You know, there's, there's a, a, a sentence 
in the Vatican II documents that say, and this is speaking to Catholics, that if, if you're a member of the church, it doesn't matter if you don't have charity. That's right. So, you know, we're called to love and to serve and to give and, and to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what, I mean, that's the hardness of our scriptures, right? Is, is to grow in holiness, to grow uh, through living out our faith. I believe you're you're referring there to Lumen Gentium, paragraph 14, which is a that's a paragraph I recommend to every single Catholic to read it, meditate on it, because it is you talk about a hard saying. This is this is one of them, because it it talks about how if we as Catholics, we can be Catholic, you know, cradle Catholic, whatever. But if we are not living in cooperation with God's grace, not only will we not be saved, but we will be held to the higher and harsher judgment because of the great gifts we have as Catholics. It, it talks about those who are in the, in the church, but in body alone yeah. and not in spirit. This is a huge problem we have in the church. And this is why, you know, this is why our Holy Father uh, Pope St. John Paul the Great began this whole new evangelization that's, you know, leading to this springtime that he talked about. The new evangelization, Marcus, begins in the pew. Yeah. yeah. Look, if Catholics live like if we live, not just arguing verses about justification, salvation, sanctification, but if we live it, <laughs> my friend, we live this doctrine, we're going to be seeing conversions all over the place, not because of our theological rigor, but because uh, of lives lived on fire for Jesus Christ that attract people. And one of the reasons that we're saying this today in this program is to our our brothers and sisters in Christ who said, I accepted Jesus as my savior 35 years ago, and so I've arrived. Yeah. And we want to say, listen, uh, as it says in 1 John, if you say you, you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. Amen. If you say you abide in Christ and you're not walking as Jesus walked, you know, our reason for talking about this is we want the whole gospel of Jesus Christ to be Amen. part of your life. Tim, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Once again, everyone, timstaples.com or catholic.com if you want to find out more about what Tim does. How in the world did the time go that fast, Marcus? Well, it's because we're having so much fun. <laughs> Amen. Go to chnetwork.org if you want to find out more about the Coming Home Network, or you can go to deepinscripture.com to find out more about the Deep in Scripture program. Thank you again for joining us. God bless you. See you on Facebook and Twitter, and see you next week. God bless. Thank you.